So, quick announcement. Um, next week, this time next week, we're still meeting. I will not be here. I will be up in New York City getting my butt kicked by some UFC champions, uh, doing some jiu-jitsu training up there. But I'll be back the next week after that. However, next week, uh, my friend Alan is going to be filling in for us. There he is, right in the back. Everybody, get excited. He's going to blow your minds. So be ready. Put a lot of pressure on him. <clears throat> no, Alan's a good friend of mine, and, and uh, he's, he's agreed to fill in next week. So you can still come, still have lunch, and he's going to do some, uh, some teaching and get you fired up and send you back out for the rest of your work day. And then when I get back the week after, we'll pick back up where we leave off today. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 3. We, we went through most of chapter 3 last week. We're going to pick up halfway through it and into some of chapter 4. The chapter divisions in your Bibles, I don't know if you know this or not, but those were not there when the Bible was written. Chapters and verses were added in the medieval and renaissance times. So don't get fret, don't, don't fret out, don't freak out, don't get you know, discombobulated if we don't finish whole chapters and, and you know, stop in the middle, things like that. They were never there to begin with, so it's okay. Uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 3, Moses, where is he in chapter 3? He's having a conversation with the angel of the Lord, who we found out last week is God himself in localized manifestation form. Where is Moses when he's talking to the Lord? Midian. He's in Midian. He's in the wilderness. Where specifically in Midian is he? Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Yeah, he's in what would be today modern northwest Saudi Arabia. And he is on the mountain of God where he was grazing his flocks. And he turned, he saw a burning bush. No big deal. Bushes burn in the wilderness all the time. Turns, looks again, it's not being consumed. So he goes over to check it out, and that's when the Lord appears during his humdrum everyday life after 40 years in the wilderness. Moses is 80 years old at this point. Moses is 80 years old. Remember that when you're watching Christian Bale leading people in armies against <laughs> Egypt. Um, 80, all right? He's no spring chicken, but yet this is just the beginning of his real ministry, that God's been preparing him for 80 years. So think about that when you start to think about retirement. God may be ready to just get started with you. So God appears to him. God tells him what he's going to do. He's going to go back to Egypt, where he came from. He's going to go back to Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, because the other one had died. And he's going to say, you're going to basically take all of Egypt's workforce away. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him, uh, God says, let my people out of your country, and um, that's your job. That's a pretty daunting task for a wanted man turned shepherd who's been gone for 40 years. So we're going to pick up verse 12. God said, we looked last week, God said, I will be with you. This will be the sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble 
the elders of Israel and say to them, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I've promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders of Israel to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, I am the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to I am our God. And I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you'll not go out empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. That is in fulfillment. Now we saw last week that the fulfillment is from Genesis 15. And Genesis 15 is when God makes this promise to Abraham about his offspring, about his descendants, about his seed, that he will bring them out of a foreign land after 400 years of slavery, and he won't bring them out empty-handed, but bring them out with great possessions. And so this is how God says he's going to do it. He says the Egyptians themselves are going to give you their gold and their silver and send you away. And that, that would be, symbolically, that would be payment for the debt, 400 years of slavery. In ancient uh, Israel, later in Torah, when there's regulations on household servants and when you release your servants after seven years of servitude, um, then you're not, you're not to send them out empty-handed. You're sending them out with payment as well for the time that they served you. And so we see this going all the way back to the Exodus account itself. However, you notice when I was reading that, every time your Bible said Lord, I said I am. Every time your Bible said Lord, capital L, and then slightly smaller, capital O, capital R, capital D. You can look at that right on your page if you have an English Bible. Most likely, it says Lord. Now, every time in your English Bible that it says Lord, and it's all in capitals, not lowercase L, but capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the divine name. That is the, uh, the Hebrew that that's translating is Yahweh. Yod Hey Bab Hey, four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H. That's the name of God. Now God says right here, this is the name, this is my name. This is how you're going to remember me from generation to generation. How many of you grew up calling God Yahweh? Right? You didn't. You grew up saying the Lord, or God, or Father. Or you've been in those prayer groups where somebody just throws them all out. Father, Lord, God, we just thank you, Lord, God. <laughs> you just, everything but the actual name that he said. Now, if you've been home on a Saturday morning, you may have had your doorbell rung by some very nice people who have told you, yeah, that's wrong. God has a name. You need to call him by his name. And his name is Jehovah. Well, that's sort of right. The sentiment is right. God does have a name. He should be called by his name. He tells his people to call him by his name. There's no prohibition against calling him by his name in all of Scripture. It's a later practice after the time of Jesus. But his name is a form of the term I am or I will be or I exist. 
And if you think about it, in the ancient Near East, in the biblical times that this has taken place, names in the Bible tell more than, than just uh, what the parents decided to call the kid. You know, names in our day don't really have a ton of great meaning, or they don't really tell us a lot about each other. You know, we have names like James and Michael and Smith, right? <laughs> My name. And none of those are really descriptive. None of those really tell much about who I am. You know, we pick names based on how they sound, what celebrities name their babies, um, you know, what we see in a special place that we're in, some sign or something like meadow or something like that. You know, like we come up with these names and they may be pretty, but they don't necessarily communicate something about us. However, in biblical times, names had that function. Revealed names had that function. And the gods had names. And it was believed by a number of Israel's neighbors that knowing the name of a god would give you um, access to that god. Knowing the god's name. Like, for instance, in Egyptian literature, there's all these... Uh, incantations and, and hymns and songs that would be sung whenever someone would encounter a snake or whenever someone would be bit by a snake. They would have these incantations and these hymns that would heal the person that were supposed to protect them from dying from the snake bite. And, and the way that those worked was by invoking the name of the particular <clears throat> god that was supposed to heal. And so there was all these Egyptian tales about finding out the name of this God, because if you found out the name of the God, then it was, it was meaning you had access, or you, even some cultures thought you had power to summon or to get that God to act on your behalf. So there's a lot of cultural baggage about a God and knowing that God's name, because it meant that you really did have some type of connection with this God. It wasn't just the sky God, the God of the Nile, the God of the sun. It was a name. And when God reveals his name, it's fitting because unlike all the other peoples in the ancient world, the Hebrews were the only people who were monotheistic. They were the only people group who only believed in one God. Every other people group in the ancient world, without exceptions that I know of, believed in either many gods or a hierarchy where you may have had a great god and then you had other lesser gods or territorial gods. So in Egypt, your god was head honcho, but if you go over to Babylon, their god is head honcho, and there would be wars between the peoples were seen as wars against the gods, and what happened on earth was a reflection of the gods fighting in heaven, and if you lost, then you adopted the gods of the people that conquered you, because obviously that's whose side you want to be on. The Hebrews were the only people whose god was totally different, totally different from all of that. He was the god who was not based on anything revealed in nature. All of the elements of nature, we saw this when we studied Genesis 1 and 2, if you guys remember that we're here way back then. All of the elements of nature that are mentioned in the creation account of Genesis 1 were gods in Mesopotamia and Egypt. The sun, the moon, the stars, the cattle, the birds, the sea serpents, the fish, even the waters, even the day, even the night. Those were all gods. But Israel is the only group that had a belief that there's one God, and he's not... Those, those things in nature aren't aspects of him. They aren't reflections or, or, excuse me, they aren't parts of him. They aren't manifestations of him. They're creation from him. In other words, he is separate from everything. There's nothing in creation that can fully compare to God, the God of the Hebrews, to Yahweh. 
So when he reveals himself as I am, that is the purest and the most basic form of identification possible for this God. He is. It's the Hebrew word that the verb means to be. It's like our English verb is or to be. He is. He will be. He has been. He always will be. He brings into being. He's the source of everything. This was radically different from anything in the ancient world that we know of. And so it's important to understand that. And every time in your Bible you come to that phrase, the Lord, and it's everywhere. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. That's the name Yahweh. I am. So where did Jehovah come from? Well, um, Jehovah, you might as well say abracadabra. They have about the same amount of validity in terms of meaning. But the practice was, and I posted an article on my Facebook feed and website yesterday that, that has more about this, so check that out uh, when you leave if you want the actual visuals and stuff. But basically, by the time of Jesus, before the time of Jesus, a practice arose within Israel of not saying God's name out loud. The reason, one of the reasons, was because you may inadvertently say it in a flippant, an offhand, or an incorrect manner, thus violating the third commandment, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So there was a practice among pious Jews that whenever you would come, you're reading the Hebrew text, you know, you're, you're in a synagogue or a temple or wherever, you're reading along in the Hebrew out loud, and you come to Yahweh, you would know, you wouldn't say Yahweh, you would say either Adonai, which means the Lord, or you would say Hashem, which means the name. And so later, as the Hebrew Bible was, was transmitted and passed on for, for hundreds of years, in about 1,000 A.D., like after the time of Jesus, about 1,000, give or take, a group of scribes, Tiberian Masoretes, they took the Hebrew text of the Bible, and they said, we need to pass this on so that future readers can read this out loud and can recite it in synagogue, at bar mitzvahs, all those times when you read scripture. Problem was, the Hebrew language, as it was written, as it was originated, didn't have vowels. Like, we write with vowels, we have consonants, we have vowels in English. Hebrew just had consonants. The vowels were understood. You just knew the vowels, what vowels should be there, because you grew up speaking the language. It's how it is today in Israel, if you go there, all the street signs, you'll never see vowels. You just see the consonants. So imagine taking a sentence in English, taking out all of the vowels, smashing it together, and giving it to someone. If they were a native English speaker, they could probably make it out. They could probably know what you were saying. But if they weren't a native English speaker, or they were, their English wasn't great, they would need to know what vowels to put with the consonants to make sure they were reading the right words. So what the Masoretes did was they invented a system of points and dashes that they would put around the letters in different spots and those points and dashes would say, these are the vowels you need to say with these letters. All right, so all well and good. This is a boring history lesson so far for some of you. Stay with me. <laughs> this was passed on, and it's how it is today. If you go pick up a Hebrew Bible, open it up, you're going to see the letters, the consonants, and you're going to see these vowel points. And, and if you learn Hebrew, that's how you learn to read it. Well, they did a funny thing. Whenever they come to the name, yod heh vav -He, Yahweh, whenever they come to the name Yahweh in the text, the scribes, the Masoretes, didn't want people who didn't necessarily know Hebrew to inadvertently pronounce the name out loud. They didn't want them to say the name out loud, lest they violate the commandment, lest they take it in vain, whatever, whatever. So what they did 
was when they came to the word Yahweh, yod Hey vav Hey, Y-H-W-H, they put the vowel points for the word Adonai underneath and around the consonants for Yahweh. So when you're reading along, you get to this word and you see the letters and the consonants and, and that's, you know, it's Yahweh, but the vowel points are weird. They're the vowel points for Adonai. So you go, oh yeah, that's because this is the name. I'm not supposed to say it. So you would just say Adonai or Hashem out loud as you're reading. So fast forward a little while longer. English Bible translations started coming around. English translators came to the Hebrew text. They translate into English. They get to this word, Y-H-W-H, but it has these vowels of Adonai in it. So they just write it as it is, and you get Yehovah, this weird hybrid word that's not Yahweh, and it's not Adonai, it's Yehovah. That becomes in English, Jehovah. That becomes in the minds of some people, the name of God. Now they're right that God has a name. They're right that his name is important, they're wrong that it's Jehovah. No Hebrew ever said the word Jehovah. God certainly never said, call me Jehovah. His name was Yahweh. It got miscombobulated as Yehovah and by people that didn't know their Hebrew, didn't know the tradition behind it, ends up in some of our Bibles as Jehovah. So, the nice people come and knock on your door, bring them inside, <laughs> log on your computer, pull up your tablet, Go to jmsmith.org slash blog, get this article, share it with them, and then have a nice coffee with them because they're really nice people. Regardless, the point of that little historical excursus was to say God reveals his name to Moses. His name is Yahweh. And your English Bibles, the reason that they do Lord instead of Yahweh is because it's a carryover of that tradition that pious Jews, even before the time of Jesus, did, which is substituting Adonai for Yahweh. So in English, they substitute Lord for Yahweh. There's nothing wrong with saying the name Yahweh. It's not superstitious. You know, you don't have to fear saying his name. He says right here, this is my name. Remember me by this name throughout the generations. And over and over and over and over in the Old Testament, you see people calling out to Yahweh. Calling out to Yahweh. So remember that as you're reading through scripture, and every time we come to the word Lord, even if I read Lord, just know that it's Yahweh that's being said. I am the one who eternally is. He doesn't come into being. He doesn't owe his origin to a chaos monster breathing him out. He doesn't owe his origin to a cosmic battle between the forces of chaos and the forces of good. None of that stuff like the Egyptians and Babylonians gods came into being through, but simply he exists. Everything that we know that is good, pure, beautiful, righteous, noble is only so because it reflects that much of God himself. This is utterly different from anything in the ancient world and different from any of the non-Abrahamic religions that are out today. So this is who reveals himself, shows himself to Moses. Moses' response, verse chapter 4, Moses answered, what if they don't believe or listen to me and say, Yahweh didn't appear to you. So Moses' response here is, now you start to see that Moses is kind of, he's trying to wiggle out of this. Because he has just had a face-to-face -face encounter with the Almighty. And the Almighty has not just said, hey, I'm Yahweh. We're good. Have a great day. <laughs> but he said, hey, go to the most powerful nation on the earth where you're a fugitive and, and release their entire workforce. 
and I'm going to be with you when you do it. It's a pretty big command. So Moses is less than thrilled. So you see he's starting to reach for some excuses, but it's also legitimate. What if they don't believe me? Because if somebody walks into your office and said, hey, you know God? He told me that uh, all of us need to go home early today. Your boss is not going to fly unless you can do, that person can do some serious magical skills, which God's going to introduce. So, so Yahweh said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Yahweh said, throw it on the ground. What's that in your hand? Well, Moses is a shepherd. A shepherd's tool is their staff. Staff is what they use to protect the sheep. It's what they use to guide, to gently nudge the sheep. It's usually like a staff, and there may be kind of a curved uh, top to it. Uh, it was very personalized. As we saw back in Genesis 30, it's like 34, I think, with the whole episode with Dinah and Judah, and how she tricks him into sleeping with her as the disguised prostitute. And as payment, down payment, she says, well, give me your staff. And that's how she identified him. Your staff was like, uh, one scholar says, it's like your passport and your driver's license in the ancient world. It was unique to you. You had your staff. Everybody knew it was your staff. It was usually they were carved, maybe. They were you know, decorative, maybe painted, maybe inlaid with certain stones. Somehow, it was personalized. And so God says, hey, Moses, what's that in your hand? It's a staff. Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And he ran from it which is redundant. Obviously, if you throw your staff on the ground and it's a serpent, you're going to run from it as well. <laughs> then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Who's ever picked up a snake? Right? A couple of you. Where do you pick a snake up by? The head. Why? If you pick it up by the tail, it will probably bite you. But God says, pick it up by the tail. There's an element of trust that has to happen here. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said Yahweh, is so that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then Yahweh said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. Now, it says he took his hand out and it was leprous, white as snow. One, this is the word for leprous is the word for a generic form of skin diseases. Not what we think of as leprosy today, which is Hansen's disease, which is where you're, you lose nerve feeling and you like lose digits, fingers fall off the nose and hair and stuff like that. It's not like that. It's, it's anything, it's like, you know, it could be anything from psoriasis to some kind of scaly, itchy something, skin disease. So when he pulls it out, it says it was like snow. Now, the NIV says white like snow, I think. I don't know if it says white or not. Um, but the text doesn't say white. It just says like snow. So it could be either it was white and flaky and, and like, you know, kind of a scabby, gross thing. Or it could be talking about it was kind of flaking and peeling off and, you know, like, like mega dandruff, but on your hand. Um, it could be either of those. The point is that it went into his cloak clean, it came out unclean. Went back into his cloak, came out clean. This is something that would carry a lot of weight in the ancient world where one of the primary things that people invoked the God's protection and guidance and, and prayers for was healing. 
of skin diseases in particular. And Egypt was known for having a number of skin diseases that people suffered with at times throughout history. And later in the Exodus, in Leviticus and Numbers, there will be all of these detailed rules for how God's people are to handle skin diseases because they were seen as highly contagious. And they were not something to just mess around with. So this isn't just a small thing. I mean, this is, he's, first of all, he's demonstrated, he's turned the staff of Moses into a serpent, the symbol of Egypt, into right in front of their eyes and then back into the staff. So he's a God of transformation over these elements of nature. He can transform. He can, he's showing his sovereignty over these revered creatures of Egypt. Secondly, now he's the God who can restore. He can, he, he can bring disaster. He can bring uh, uh, disease. And just as easily, he can heal disease. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there will be times when particularly skin disease in certain individuals is a result of God humbling them. If you think about the episode of Naaman, the Syrian, who God humbles through his skin disease. Or later in Exodus, uh, or in Numbers, when Aaron and uh, Miriam complain against Moses and actually try to rebel and and, and God strikes Miriam herself with this same type of ailment. And Moses prays for her and she's healed. And so it's like God showing, this is, this, I'm not playing. This is the God who you're serving. I can do this. I have power over nature. I have power over sickness. And then the last sign here, if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. The last one, the Nile was Egypt. Egypt was the Nile. Look at a satellite image of Egypt, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's a giant square that's brown with a green strip running through it. That's where people live. Everywhere else, people don't really live. Because Egypt was the Nile. It lived and it died by the Nile. The Nile was seen as a god in Egypt. The Nile was seen as the source of all the divine, the source of all fertility. In fact, one of the gods to represent the Nile was Hopi. And the image of Hopi was a, a, a half male, half female, or a hermaphroditic type god image that was seen as both the fertilizer of the land and the nurturer of the land, male and female. Every year, the snowmelt from way down in South Africa where the Nile starts, the snowmelt would come and flow, and the whole Nile Valley would be inundated with this rich black mud that, was, that had all of the nutrients and all of the, the abilities to grow these fertile crops. And that's how Egypt was able to survive all these famines. The Nile was their lifeline. It was the source of clean water. It was the source of fresh water. In fact, Egyptians believed that all the rain in all the other countries in the world was just their way of getting river from the Nile. It was like the Nile was sprinkling down on these other countries as well, but Egypt had the source. So it's extreme significance. It was the symbol of who they were as a people and their power and their fertility. And God says, pour it on the ground and watch it turn to blood. A symbol of death, a symbol of coming destruction. So this is a foreboding sign. This isn't just a magic trick. You know, it's not, well, rabbits and hats weren't yet invented, so let's do some Nile magic. It wasn't like that. This was a sign. This was a warning sign, not just to the people, but also to the Egyptians. And the idea is that Moses would have probably had to do these things more than once, because you can't gather all 50, 100, 200, maybe a million Israelites together in one spot and just show them this. This would be something that would probably have been done on many occasions to the leaders, to the elders, and even the Egyptians would have taken notice. So the signs that he has Moses do, signs of transformation, signs of renewal, and signs of overthrowing, or sign of judgment. These aren't just random tricks 
communicating something powerful. And so Moses, God does this. He shows Moses, this is what you're going to do. It's all you could ask for, for a sign. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Moses said to Yahweh, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. In Hebrew, literally, I am heavy tongue and heavy mouth. Now Moses is really reaching. He's, he's trying to do anything he can to get out of this. I'm not eloquent. I, I don't, you know, even though I was raised in all the wisdom of Egypt, even though I could speak Egyptian and speak Hebrew, even though I can ingratiate myself into another foreign family and be married within them and have a family, and, and there's nothing in the text that would say Moses has any kind of speech impediment. There's nothing in the text that would say Moses has any kind of deformity. He's reaching at this point. We know that because he speaks the entire rest of the book. And he speaks fine. He speaks the whole book of Deuteronomy. And he speaks fine. This is an excuse that he's coming up with. And it's this biblical, exaggerated hyperbole. It's part polite, but also not really true. Saul does it. When God speaks to Saul, and Saul says, oh, but I'm from the least tribe of the least people. No, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from a powerful tribe. David does it. Oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm a dog. Who am I to be married into the family? Well, you're the victorious general coming back from battle. Jeremiah does it. Oh, I'm just a child. I can't speak. He's a grown man when God shows up. Even Paul does it in the New Testament. Oh, I'm the chief of sinners. No, you're the apostle who says, follow me as I follow Christ. This is a biblical, ancient Near East way of, of showing humility and deference. But in Moses' case, we see it's more than just that. It's him really trying to get out of this assignment that he doesn't want to do. And God says, in counter, the response to it, God says, verse 11, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. In Hebrew, it literally says, I will be with your mouth. Could not ask for a better promise than that if you're worried about speech. Finally, we get to Moses' real uh, response. Verse 13, but Moses said, Oh, Yahweh, please send someone else to do it. In Hebrew, please uh, send by the hand who you will. Very polite, very diplomatic way of saying, I don't want to do this. Verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. His heart will be glad when he sees you. You'll speak to him and put words in his mouth. I'll help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He'll speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. Take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. In the movie, anybody see Exodus movie? He specifically left his staff in Midian and took his sword. That was a very powerful and very dumb uh, thing, decision to make. Because it, but it showed the tenor of the movie. The, the movie Moses was a, was a fighting Moses. It was a warrior Moses. The biblical Moses was a shepherd. And the might and the overthrowing of Egypt came not through his sword, but through the staff, which will be prominent throughout the rest of the, uh, the Torah. So verse 18, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if they, any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. So Moses now, all of his excuses have been taken. His signs have been provided that he asked for. God even condescends at his insistence of, I don't want to do it. He even says, fine, I'm not going to send you alone. I'll send Aaron. In fact, he's already on his way. 
providence of God had already taken into account Moses' doubts and Moses' desire to, to um, get out of this assignment. And you see God saying, nope, 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 you're who I'm going to use. And so there's some acquiescence on God's part, but there's also the call. And God's, God is not concerned about Moses' competence because God knows his own omnipotence. And that is the thing that's going to guide Moses and Israel through this encounter with the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And that's where we'll pick up in two weeks when I get back from New York. Uh, Alan will be here with you next week, so have a great week. Come back next week hungry, ready to uh, dig into scripture as well, and keep telling people about the study. Let's fill this whole room out. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you.